www.bethlehemcommunity.com. All right, well, as the kids are, are kind of making their way downstairs, we're kind of rolling into our message time up here. And um, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, again, I mentioned earlier, we're doing this series called uh, Christmas at the Movies. And so it's just looking at different things that we see in some of the classic Christian mo- or Christmas movies um, and uh, how they can maybe help us uh, get a little different perspective or uh, see something unique within the Christmas story, the events that unfolded that we read about in Scripture. And so uh, it's been fun, and uh, you know we're kind of wrapping things up today. But um, today is called How to Ruin Christmas, because there are a number of Christmas movies where there's these great villain characters in them, right, that cause problems and ruin the holiday. So we're going to look at a couple of clips this morning to set us up. First one is coming from The Nightmare Before Christmas, right? Jack Skeleton and he, well, you're going to see he kind of gets a glimpse of Christmas and decides he wants it for himself. So let's take a look at the clip. And so with that, Jack Skeleton goes on a crusade to take over Christmas. And if you haven't seen the movie, it's, uh, it's very interesting. Tim Burton classic, right? So we have another clip. This one is from Santa Claus 3. And uh, in Santa, Santa Claus, the one with Tim Allen, right? He plays Santa Claus. But Jack Frost, played by Martin Short, uh, he wants to replace Santa Claus because he's a little bit jealous. Jack Frost doesn't get all the credit that he deserves, and he's not being used to his full potential. So he comes up with a scheme to convince Santa to kind of relinquish his role. Take a look at this. All right, so, uh, so this, we have a, uh, you know, an effort then, of course, by Santa Claus trying to get back his role. And then our final uh, little clip, this is from probably a way more classic movie uh, that we've seen, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. All right, let's take a look at that one. So, we're going to skip this one, and I'll tell you why, because I sent the wrong video clip and it's going to take forever. All right, so you can just imagine, but what was the big deal with the Grinch who hated Christmas, hated the Who's in Whoville? His heart was what? Two sizes too small. All right, you get the picture. We're going to just move on from that. So, you've got these villains. You've got these criminals and uh, these villains who are trying to ruin Christmas. Now, there are others. Um, for instance, Hans Gruber, right? Die Hard. Probably one of the... Oh, oh, don't. Let's not hear that that's not a Christmas movie. We've already had that debate many times around here. Uh, you know, whatever. You can have your own opinion. Uh, uh, but Hans Gruber, right? Willing to blow up this building and all the people in it. That'd be a pretty big bummer on Christmas if you were one of those people in the building. For those who are hoping for a die-hard clip, uh, you know, here at church, uh, you're going to have to find me one that's appropriate in order to be able to show it to you, and we can talk. But either way, like Hans Gruber, great villain, right? Like, he's a great villain. Um, there's the gremlins, and of course the, well, the gremlins are kind of like the ones in there. That's a Christmas movie, happens at Christmas. Mainly Spike in the picture. And they just want to cause general mayhem and chaos and disaster for everyone. Um, We already heard it as one of the answers in our questions. Home Alone, 
There's Harry and Marv, right? Uh, the crooks played by Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern. Not awesome crooks, by the way, but they are pretty good bad guys for a comedy movie. All right, now what's the point of all this? Our Christmas story, the one that we read about in Scripture, which is more than a story, it's an event that actually occurred. We definitely have a bad guy. <laughs> we definitely have a, a villain. And he's more sinister than any of these ever were. And it was doing his best to ruin Christmas. We're going to see that in our passage this morning. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. We're going to kind of work through, actually through 18 um, but we're going to kind of work through that this morning. If you want to follow along in your Bible or your Bible app, uh, but the words will be up on the screen as well. It says this, Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, the wise men here, they were magi, is kind of the official uh, word there. They were, in essence, they were like oriental scientists, right? Astrologers of sorts that interpreted meaning in the stars. Uh, they were kind of considered in, in that culture on equal footing with the oriental teachers and physicians and interpreters of dreams, fortune tellers, sorcerers, that sort of thing. And so they see a star rise or appear which they interpreted to be a sign that a king had been born. And in this particular case, that was true. So they leave to find Jesus. Verse 3, when Herod, when, the king, when Herod the king heard about this, of course, what they had said to him, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So this is Herod the Great. Like, just for clarity. He was the ruling king over all the territory in the area, Israel, Judea. Um, any newborn king would be a threat to him and to his family's succession as king. Right? And it says in verse 4, Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now this, this is a prophecy from the prophet Micah. It's in Micah 5.2, chapter 5, verse 2. Of course, there weren't verses and chapters when it was written. But this is a prophecy of Micah, specifically. It's kind of a prophecy within a prophecy. Meaning, Micah is telling them about a calamity and a judgment that's going to occur to both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, right? Israel and Judah. But within his prophecy, there are these words that are pointing or foreshadowing to the coming of the Messiah, the promised one. Now, not all of the passage applies to Jesus, but this verse clearly does. And it indicates that this ruler, this king, would be from the city of David the city of King David, and of the lineage of King David. Also then in Micah 5, 4 and 5, like a couple of verses later, it says this, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, 
and he shall be their peace. Now, I don't know about you, but we often get this picture, this image of Jesus as kind and gracious, as good and merciful and peaceful, as humble and meek, and and he is all those things. But he's also strong and mighty, this said. He says, says he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. The strength of the Lord is pretty darn strong. Right? There is nothing more powerful than God, and he is going to shepherd his people in that strength. It says, and in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. The majesty of God's name, the excellence, the magnificence is far above any other name. Like that's who Jesus is. So no wonder a king like this was a threat to Herod's plans to rule and reign as king. Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now that seems innocent enough, right? Oh, when you find him, let me know, because I want to worship him too. But Herod had way more in mind than worshiping Jesus. That was his cover story. And of course, we're going to see that as these events unfold. So it says in verse 9, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now there's some significance in each one of these gifts. Gold, of course, is a very precious metal. We understand that. It's very valuable even today as a commodity. It could very well have financed the trip that, uh, to Egypt that Mary and Joseph were about to take, unbeknownst to them. Most newborn kings would already have access to gold, to wealth. Right? They'd be born to an existing king and just be waiting to take over the throne. Not Jesus. He had nothing. So gold here was a symbol, though, of Jesus' royalty and also his divinity. Frankincense is a white resin or a gum that's highly fragrant when it's burned. It was often used in worship and burned as a pleasant fragrance to God and it signified prayers being offered to him. Incense did. Frankincense was the symbol of Jesus' holiness and his righteousness. And then myrrh. This is a product of Arabia. It was a spice that was often used in embalming. And it would seem an unusual gift because even though he was an infant, this foreshadowed his death. Right? Myrrh symbolized the bitterness, the suffering, and the affliction that Jesus would go through. So these were the gifts that they gave Jesus when they came to worship him. Not sure if these gifts were typical for every king, every newborn king, but they were particularly meaningful for this one. So, they give their gifts, and they worship him. And then, verse 12, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Now we kind of have the plot of the villain revealed. He wanted to kill Jesus. And in fact, the word doesn't just say he wanted to kill Jesus. It said he wanted to destroy him. If you look up uh, the, the word there, the original uh, Greek word there, um, it actually says he meant to utterly destroy him. That's what that word means, utterly destroy Now that's the mark of a really bad, bad guy, right? It's not enough to win. It's not enough to kill the good guy. He wants to utterly destroy the good guy. Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Israel and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And think about that. What a terrible thing to do. Like he couldn't track down Jesus to kill or destroy just him, so instead he killed everybody who could be Jesus. That's awful. Like You think about the villains that we saw. Hans Gruber has nothing on Herod. Now, God, of course, intervenes to protect Jesus, right? First, he sends the wise men by a different, home by a different route, right? So Herod doesn't find out where Jesus is. Then he instructs Jacob to flee to Egypt with Jesus. So God is protecting Jesus from the evil that Herod wants to do to him. But listen, it comes at a great cost. Many lives were lost because of the wickedness of Herod. And they were just kids. Imagine the reality of all those infants' lives being cut short. Imagine the anguish of the parents when such a cruel act was done to them and to their child. I mean, this passage ends with these words, the prophecy describing the misery of those days in Israel says this, verse 17 and 18, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, and loud lamentation, Rachel, which is representing the wife of Israel, like weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. I mean, I don't know. Think about it. Have you ever been in a situation where you, you were so distraught and filled with pain that you literally refused any comfort whatsoever? You were so disturbed by what had happened to you or to someone you love. That's the intensity of pain that Herod caused on those families. Now, sometimes when bad things happen like this, we we instantly, we naturally, we question God. Like, I imagine all these people did the same when their infants and babies were killed. Like, God, why? Why could you let this happen? How could you let this happen? And what makes it even more confusing 
is this. Jesus would ultimately give his life willingly for us. But not yet. Right? Not at that time. Eventually, but not yet. And we might even think, well, look, we know the end of the story. Jesus gives up his life, so why not just give him up right then and there? Would have saved a lot of lives, right? Would have saved a lot of heartbreak for these families. Sure. But it also would have prevented Jesus from accomplishing God's full plan of salvation for all who would trust and believe in him. And that was infinitely more important than protecting the lives that were lost. It's a hard thing to, <laughs> to let sink into your heart, but Jesus' death as an infant definitely would have ruined Christmas. Would have ruined the point of Christmas. And that would have been an even greater tragedy. And so this is another segment of the Christmas story. It's not a particularly cheery one. And so there's a few things, though, I want to bring attention to this morning. The first thing when we think about the Christmas story is this. At the heart of the story is an invitation to come and meet Jesus the Savior. Right, and we saw this last week as well when we read about the angels and the shepherds. We sang songs that talked about the angels appearing to the shepherds and the shepherds getting to see Jesus. They got this verbal message to come and behold him. Here God puts, in our story today, God puts a star in the sky and it draws the Magi to seek him out. They weren't part of God's people, but he wanted them to know him because he wants everyone to know him. He wants us to be seeking him out too because he wants us to know him. We've all been given an invitation to come and experience Jesus. The invitation of God is for us to put our faith and trust in Him. To believe in Jesus as God's one true Son, the promised Savior who died on the cross for our sin. Right? It's an invitation to know Him personally, to receive mercy and forgiveness for all the things we've ever done wrong in our life. And by the way, it covers anything else we will do in our life. That's incredible. All the ways that we fail to live up to God's perfect holy standards, we can receive mercy and forgiveness from that through Jesus. It's an invitation to come to Him no matter how good you think you are or how bad you know you've been. Because the reality is we've all fallen short. We might say, well, I'm not like bad like Herod. But we've all fallen short. We're all in the same boat. Jesus is the only way our wrongs can be made right. It's an invitation to spend eternity in heaven with Him. Even though none of us could ever earn that, and none of us deserve it. Right? So that's why this invitation, this message, is a message of good news and great joy for all men, all mankind, all humanity. Everyone is invited to receive Him. So that's the first thing, is we've all been given an invitation to come experience Jesus. But the second thing is this, it's an inv this invitation is a personal one. Right? It's an invitation only you can respond to. I mean, look, look at the people around you this morning. Many of them, maybe almost all of them, maybe all of them, 
have responded to God's invitation to put their faith and trust in Jesus personally. But listen, it doesn't matter what everyone else has done. It doesn't matter what the person next to you think. It doesn't matter that your husband responded to Jesus or your wife responded to Jesus or your brother or sister responded to Jesus or your parents responded to Jesus or your friend or your kids. Your response to the invitation of God is on you. You have to respond to his invitation personally. You have the invitation. We all do. But you need to respond to that. Here's the third thing. There's always a villain trying to take Jesus out of the picture. For you. For me. And throughout all history. Like Herod, yeah, he was the one trying to eliminate Jesus when he was born. And this might be a weird thing to talk about around Christmas, but look, it's safe to say Herod was not the mastermind behind this move. There's an even greater villain in this story and throughout history lurking in the background, almost completely unnoticed, not even mentioned in the story. Of course, I'm talking about the devil, right? Satan, he, he has fought against God's plans at every turn. He's done whatever he could since the beginning of creation to thwart God's plans. Herod was just a puppet. The devil's the one pulling the strings. But he didn't stop there at that first Christmas or at this particular story. Like, look, he couldn't eliminate Jesus altogether, but he's working hard to take Jesus out of the picture for each of us. Right? He's still trying to ruin Christmas. And here's, I think, one of the most effective ways that he does that. And it's one of the ways we can ruin Christmas for ourselves as well, is this last thing here. We make Christmas about something other than Jesus. Right? How to ruin Christmas? <laughs> we make it about something other than Jesus. Like, I, I had a top ten list of ways we could ruin Christmas that I was going to read, but we skipped it for time, and this one would have topped them all. <laughs> Look, our, our enemy's number one tactic is to distract us by making Christmas about family or making Christmas about friends or making Christmas about gifts or food or decorations or holiday cheer, or Christmas movies even, and so on. And we take our focus off what should matter most, which is Jesus. Instead of Him being our priority, other things take their place, take His place. That's a pretty good trick. Right, nice sleight of hand. Oh, look over here. Don't pay attention to what really matters. And let's face it, he doesn't have to work that hard at it. Right? We tend to make it easy on him. We cooperate. I just want to remind us, let's not do that this year. Let's make sure we're keeping Christmas about what it's supposed to be. Look, there's a number of Christmas events that you're, gonna, you're likely to have in the next week or so. How much of it will revolve around something other than Jesus? That's a challenging thought. <laughs> He's supposed to be the real reason we celebrate Christmas at Christmas time. 
For us who are followers of Jesus, we're supposed to keep him first. We're going to be singing a couple of songs in a moment that have to do with that. If the team actually wants to come up, you can come up. One of them is the song Christmas Day. And uh, the lyrics themselves talk about Jesus as the light of the world and the reason for Christmas Day. He's actually the reason for every day. He's the reason for every day. I want to encourage you to do everything you can to make sure that your reality is Jesus this Christmas season. I want to remind us to make sure that we do that. Look, if you are someone who has never taken that step of faith and put your trust and faith in Jesus, the invitation is there. We talked about that. The invitation is for you. You're able to respond personally and to say, I I want to commit my life to Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. For the first time, I want to give my life to Him. I want His forgiveness and mercy. I want to be made right with God. I want my junk forgiven. And I want it wiped away. And He does that. Right? You just simply ask Him. I want those things, Lord. Come into my life. For the rest who have made that commitment, that decision, this is a chance for us to keep the priorities straight. To keep Him the focus of Christmas. And I want to encourage you to make sure that you do that this Christmas season. Don't just do Christmas. Right? Make it a priority to gather to worship God for the gift of Jesus. Whatever you do this Christmas season. I, like hopefully here at Portico. Right? Next weekend we have our Christmas Eve worship gathering at 4.30. We're not doing Sunday morning. Love for you to be here and join us for that. But look, if you're out of town... Find a good church to go to. Make sure the message is clear. The priority is straight for you, but the message is clear for everyone around you. Christmas is meant to be about Jesus. First and foremost. And when it's not, guess what? We're letting the villain win. We're letting the villain win. And that's the best way of how to ruin Christmas. Just make it about something, anything, other than Jesus. Um, I'm going to pray for us as we close. We're going to do some more songs of worship. I want to ask Brett if you could do me a favor, if you could just pop downstairs and let uh, Sherry know that the kids can come on back up because they're going to be joining us again for our closing time of worship. So let's pray, and uh, then we'll sing together. Lord God, first and foremost, we just acknowledge you as an awesome God who's given us an incredible gift in Jesus. Not just a baby, (laughs) but the promised Savior, the one who would come and give his life on the cross to die for our sins, to take our sins away if we would put our faith and trust in him. And if there's anyone here this morning, hearing that invitation that wants to respond for the first time, just simply say in your heart of hearts right right now, yes, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe you're the Son of God, and I want to be made right with him. He knows your heart. He knows what you're feeling, what you're sensing. That prayer is something he hears even if nobody else does. 
So as you pray that prayer, and for each one of the rest of us, we want to pray that Jesus would be our focal point. Jesus would be our focus this coming season. That we would make him the priority and not let anything try to steal that away from us. Help us to keep Jesus the focus and not make it about anything else other than him. He's the reason we sing. He's the reason we worship. He's the reason we gather. He's what this season is supposed to be all about. So we ask that you would help us to do that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Everyone can say together, amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Portico Church in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. You can find out more about our church at porticocommunity.com.